Welcome to the Positively You podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Larson, and I'm passionate about helping you shift the way you think so you can create a life you're absolutely obsessed with. Each week, I'll be bringing you a guest or a thought that's going to help you feel more optimistic and equipped to take real action. Get ready to push past limiting beliefs, ditch that negativity, and start showing up as the best and most positive version of you. Girl, let's do this. Hey, everybody. I'm so excited about my chat today with my new friend, Heidi Roby, who we met like in the most, I wouldn't say random way, but just such a super fun way where... I didn't know you. You don't even live by me, by my state. And I somehow just got miraculously invited to an event where I got to meet you and not only you, but a whole bunch of other women with amazing messages, amazing purpose in the world. And just, I count myself so incredibly lucky. So everyone else today, count yourself lucky because you get to be introduced to Heidi and she is just such a delight. And this is going to be such a good conversation. So Heidi, thanks for hopping on and chatting with me. Desi, thank you. Hi, everybody. So nice to quote unquote meet you over a podcast. Hi. (laughs) Okay, Heidi. So if you want to give just a quick little bio, like who are you? What are you all about? What is kind of like your little corner of the internet, the social media world? Where do you reside and what's kind of like your thing that you're doing right now? Sure. Yeah. So I, if I had to give myself a label, I suppose. I would say that I am a comedian as well as a mental health advocate. Uh, my big goal someday is to have my own mom comedy show on TV. That's what I would really love to do. As well as I would love to travel um, as a motivational speaker um, whose kind of main emphasis is to help women, especially mothers, to be kinder to themselves um, and to be gentler with themselves. I I've struggled with mental illness, depression, and anxiety since childhood, uh, and we'll get more into that later. But um, because of all that, I just have an immense amount of empathy for everyone who has ever beat themselves up or not felt good enough. And so through writing original mom comedy skits that kind of normalize normal motherhood and through doing things like this, doing advocacy for the mentally ill and um, just for normal moms in general, Um, I am trying to make my life mission to help people be kinder to themselves, help people love themselves more and, um, and just be able to see the good in themselves that they see in other people. I love that. And, you know, the idea of kindness is not new. And I think so many times, you know, you jump on Pinterest or Instagram, you search, be kind. There's like tons of art, little, like backgrounds you can put on quotes and yes, we need more kindness, but I love your emphasis on kind to ourselves because I think that that's a little bit harder. Like it's easy to kind of put that smile on, to go out, treat people well, but do we give that same kindness back to ourselves? And I think that it's important that we kind of turn the light and shine that back on ourselves and really kind of have to sit there and be like, do I, do I treat myself kind? And if I don't like, how can I shift and what can I do to get to that place? Because if we're not treating ourselves kind, like we can't be our own 
worst enemy. We've got to have our own back. And I think a lot of us, a lot more of us than we think struggle with that. You know, if we're sitting there thinking that we're alone in this, there's one thing I've learned. If you think you're alone, you're not. And there's 10, 15, a hundred, a thousand other people in that same boat with you. And, you know, in having conversations on this podcast and in, you know, the event where I got to meet you and I got to talk with a lot of other women, I've noticed that the things that we talk about and the things that we throw ourselves into and our messages and our missions, they are born from something personal. You know, they come from just this deep thing that either we are currently battling that we have, you know, maybe reached the top of the mountain and we want to turn around and help others back up, or we're still kind of trudging along and we're right there in it. And I think that, you know, you've said that that's kind of where you are, where it was this journey that you've been on. And I would like to ask you more about that, about your journey with, you know, being unkind to yourself and having, you know, some mental health things going on and what, what that's been like for you. For sure. So uh, I think the best way for me to do that is just kind of shortly share uh, the nutshell of my story um, in terms of kind of my journey from denying the fact that I had a mental illness all the way through now being very, very open about it and going out of my way to advocate um, and open up awareness. So um, that being said, uh, I would say that all of my struggles with mental illness I think they started before this, but the time where I can say for sure I was dealing with clinical depression and anxiety at this point was in fifth grade. Um, so paint a picture of fifth grade, nine or 10 year old Heidi. Um, I have always been, my email growing up was Heidi, my sunshine, happy Heidi, you know, just this bubbly, happy, happiest person you've ever met. Uh, and that's kind of, um, I feel like that's what my soul naturally is, is a very happy, upbeat person. And I feel like my body that my soul lives inside of has this illness. So I'm always kind of fighting between what my body feels and what I, what I feel like I want to feel. So I feel like that's why in early childhood, mid childhood, that's when these things started cropping up. Cause that's when my body started to kind of take over with this illness. Um, and my sweet little kid spirit that just wanted to be free, happy Heidi had to learn how to not just come to terms, but long-term to accept and to work with the struggles that were given me with my body. Um, so when I was in fifth grade, little happy Heidi, people pleaser, social butterfly, perfectionist, she wanted everyone to love her and who loved everybody. Um, I... This is sounds silly even talking about it in retrospect, but I was in the elections to be the green team president, the recycling club. <laughs> Looking back, it's like hilarious because it was such a dumb thing, you know, like so lame. But uh, I mean, I love recycling, but I I don't remember a single green team meeting other than this particular one. Um, but what was critical about it to me was that it was a student voted upon election. So basically like a popularity contest. Um, and I was running against another girl and she won the election. And so even though being the green team president was not like my greatest life ambition, 
how I translated it in my brain at that time was, oh my gosh, my classmates don't like me. They voted against me. Um, and all of my deepest insecurities and fears that I was unlikable and unlovable and not good enough. It seemed like in those, in that moment that they had all, they were all proven to me, uh, that I really was not as loved as I thought I was. Um, and so that night I went home just completely devastated, um, went to my bed, just sobbed and sobbed. Um, and then that evening I tried to take my life as a a nine-year-old girl. Um, I am so grateful to say that I had no idea what I was doing. I was just trying to suffocate myself in my pillow, but I tried to kill myself because I was so sure that no one loved me, that I wasn't good enough. Um, my brain was already so sick at that point that I had convinced myself that it wasn't, that my life wasn't worth it anymore because, because people don't like me. Um, and I just, I kind of look at that little girl now, almost like as her mom, instead of as herself, you know, like, and I just, I ache for that little girl who hated herself so bad and who held herself at such a high standard that she felt like being voted against for a green team election was so devastating that it wasn't worth going on anymore. Um, I am so grateful also that that I can say that is the only time in my whole entire life where I have attempted suicide. Um, but it, it is absolutely not the only time in my whole entire life where I have struggled with suicidal thoughts or with, um, with feelings of, of dead end of like, this is it, this is, there's no use going on. Um, but because it was such a major thing, that is where I can for sure pinpoint this is for sure. At this point, my mental illness had started. Um, but I, social media now has really opened up a conversation about mental illness. So it's a lot more open topic, but even flashback, you know, I'm 33 now. So this is like about 23 years ago. Um, there was so much darkness and shame surrounding mental illness that it was humiliating. Like I, I was so embarrassed about the fact that I was sad and the fact that I was feeling this emotional pain that I couldn't understand, um, that I just hid it from the world. Obviously my family kind of knew about it because I couldn't really hide from them. I live with them, but I would go to school every day. And I'd be happy, Heidi, the nicest, happiest person at school. And then I'd go home and I would cry because I would feel so lonely because even though I was like, as Michael Bublé in that song, he says, I'm surrounded by a million people. I still feel alone, you know, because, because I didn't feel like I could be real with anyone. I couldn't have genuine conversations with anyone because I didn't, I was so sure in my mind that if anybody discovered me, if anybody found out the pain and the kind of the darkness within not darkness, like evil darkness, but like, like painful darkness within my heart, that they wouldn't like me anymore, that they only liked me because I was happy. They only liked me because I was a sunshine girl. Um, and so I, I hid my mental illness from everyone except for my family for all of my teenage years through all of college. Um, 
And during this time, I also, another factor of that, something that I think was caused by anxiety, but that also kind of fed into my anxiety. I think it's very circular, um, was this perfectionism. I, I was such a perfectionist and so hard on myself, um, that one, I would not do things that I was not naturally good at because I could not let myself fail. So I, I closed every door in my life, except for very, very few that I knew I could like be awesome at. And then two, the things that I chose to let into my life, I like overboard, went crazy, doing good at them. Um, and those two things were church and school. So church, like, um, I on paper was a perfect person. I, didn't do anything wrong. I was such a good person, but so insanely hard on myself and never, you know, I, I just, I, if I did any little thing that I felt was like sinful or wrong, I was so hard on myself because I had made that mud of my little, my little standards that I am a perfectly good person. Um, and the other one was school. Um, I got straight A's from kindergarten through the end of college. Um, my family literally celebrated one time when I got a B, they were all so stoked because Heidi got a B and I was like totally devastated about it. Um, but I, I got my associate's degree in high school. I graduated from high school with my associate's degree as the valedictorian in my graduating class. And I went to college on a full academic scholarship, which I maintained through graduation. Um, and so every test in college, every assignment, I just felt this pressure where I was like, I have to nail this or I'm going to lose my scholarship. I have to do this or else I felt like my worth, my worthiness, you know, like my grades or, or how good I was being, or, you know, whatever it was I said is my standard of what I need to do. If I failed in that, I felt it really had a direct impact upon my worth. And so I always felt not just guilt when I didn't do my best. I felt shame. I felt like, not like I did a bad thing, but I am bad because, because I didn't get good enough grades or because I didn't, I said something mean to someone or, you know, whatever it was, I didn't pray or read scriptures today. So I'm a bad person, you know, which yeah. obviously those are very faulty ways of thinking, but when you are living inside of a depressed mind or an anxious mind, um, those are the thoughts that, that your mind promotes and that tells you our truth. Um, so that kind of sums up my denial side of this story. Yeah. Uh, and well, and Heidi, I have a question for you. When you yeah. were in this and as you're growing up, you say you're in denial. Like, did you even, was that just outside denial or did you even have yourself fooled where it was like, if I check off all these things, I'm fine. And then it wasn't yeah. until you missed one where that shame rears its ugly head, where you're like reminded, was it enough that you could like force it all down? And that's almost what like drove you to that perfectionism was it was like, keeping you kind of safe. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I knew that I was sad. I knew I was hurting, but I was so embarrassed about it that I just hid it from everyone. Um, and I would try to act like I was okay, even though I don't know if I could really fool myself because I, I knew myself yeah. I was hurting. Like I couldn't deny the fact that I was in a severe amount of pain, but I would deny it to everybody else and wouldn't tell anybody about it and would put on this sunshine face and it was exhausting. It was so exhausting to have to live basically like a double life all the time and to always, always, always feel like I was on a stage and like I was acting and that I had to put on 
a show as a happy person, even though I was hurting, that is, that is exhausting. It is not sustainable, obviously. (laughs) No. And it sounds like you sustained it actually for quite a long time. So was there a breaking point for you where you finally were like, could not deny that anymore? Cause you're obviously now in a place where this is a message and you're sharing. So what was that? What was that point for you where, was it a big, like, aha, like groundbreaking point or was it kind of more gradual? Sure. Uh, I mean, I think it was like, it was probably, well, I think it was more like an aha moment. And once I hit those big two aha moments, it was, it's been a journey since then, you know, it just kind of had to get hit a breaking point bottom of the pit. And I've been slowly climbing myself out ever since, you know? Um, and I would say that comes down to kind of two, two times the first time, uh, where I first started taking medication for it. And the second time where I started reaching out for therapy. Um, so that first, the real breaking point where I finally, I mean, this whole time I had not been diagnosed with depression, and anxiety, you hadn't talked to a doctor about it, anything for 10 years, you know? Um, yeah. but when I was finishing up my final year in college, um, I, was moving into a new apartment and part of my anxiety, part of my perfectionism is that it made making choices excruciating for me and like paralyzing. Cause I was so afraid, so afraid of the domino effect of a wrong choice. Like if I move in the wrong apartment, then I won't find my husband and then this and blah, blah, blah. You know, like, it just felt like every single decision was, was monumental, monumental. So I was moving into this new apartment. My dad was helping me and we were meeting my landlord and I was so stressed about whether or not I made the right choice of where to live that year that I had a massive panic attack and it was humiliating. So I was having a panic attack in front of this landlord I'd never met before. Um, and my dad, he was just kind of like, uh, what do I do? What do I do? You know? Um, but I, I couldn't help it. It was it's like a tidal wave. Like I couldn't help it. It was uncontrollable for me. I was so stressed. Um, so my sweet dad, I will be grateful to him for forever for doing for me what I should have done for myself for forever, but just never had the courage to do. Um, I was at BYU. And so he called the BYU psychiatry department. He got me an appointment. Um, he just did it for me, set it up. So I went and met with a psychiatrist and talked to him. It was really embarrassing to have to open up about I basically told him everything I told you. Um, and he diagnosed me with depression that is triggered by anxiety that I get so anxious about things that I feel like there's nowhere left to go. And I bottom out, I bottom out depression. Um, that was the first time I received an official diagnosis and he prescribed me with my very first medication. I started on 10 milligrams a day of, um, a drug called citalopram. It's an SSRI and it when I think about medication versus therapy, this is kind of how I would describe it to someone who, who doesn't do it. Um, if you think about, if you have a mental illness, think about you're in the middle of a bunch of ocean waves, these huge tidal waves, and it doesn't matter how good of a swimmer you are, you're going to drown. You just will. You can't, you can't stay up on top of that. Medication took those tidal waves for me and it turned them into kind of like lake waves where I still needed to be able to swim, but I could do it. If I learned how to swim, I could stay on top of it versus the tidal waves. I had, there was no room left for me to be in charge of my life because my emotions were so strong that it took over everything. 
Um, so that's when I got on meds, but I still needed to learn how to swim. And this is another journey, me learning that I needed help with that. So after graduating from BYU, I turned in my mission papers for the LDS church and I got called in a mission to Provo, Utah. I went right back on my mission, which I was not stoked about. So while I was serving about halfway through my mission, um, I just hit absolute rock bottom because I was still deep in all of this perfectionism and the standard to be a good person is like here. And then like the standard to be a good LDS missionary is like through the roof. And it was the first time in my life where one, I couldn't hide because I was with my companions. They saw everything. I couldn't hide from people. And two, I was put in a situation where there was something I had to do that I physically could not do by myself anymore. It wasn't like my grades where I could just like get the good grades and like be like, woo, I'm awesome. I got this. Uh, and all of those things, it was like the perfect storm, the perfect pressure cooker. I was in a really, 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 really dark place mentally. Um, to the point where I legitimately felt in, this is not true. This is what my depressed brain was telling me, but I felt like it would be more honorable for me to go home in a casket than with my suitcases. So I legitimately started hoping that I'd get cancer or hit by a car or something so that I could go home without having to feel the shame of failure. Um, and so I called my mission president's wife and sweet woman took me right under her wing and she connected me with a therapist in Provo who offered to do free therapy for full-time missionaries. And so once a week I started to go to meet with this therapist and literally that therapist saved my life. And I don't just mean that she physically saved my life, which she definitely did. Um, but she saved my life in the fact that she, what she taught me and what she opened my heart to gave me the ability to live a life. Whereas before I was not really living because I was you were so just, afraid you were just still here. Yeah. Yeah. I was on the planet, but not living truly not living my truest self. Um, so she saved my life and she gave me life. Um, and if I was going to say one thing that she taught me in therapy that has just changed my life more than anything is she helped me to understand the difference between worth and worthiness. Like I talked about before, where, when I get bad grades, or if I'd say a swear word or like was unkind to a friend. And then I would feel this immense shame that, oh my gosh, I'm the worst person ever. I am so bad. Cause I did this. She helped me to understand that our worthiness and remove that from a spiritual context. Just take that as worthiness, meaning like your grades, if you got your kitchen clean, you know, like the, yeah. the to-do list, all the things those, that we can measure ourselves by exactly our kind of out outer measures that that is completely disconnected from our worth that our worth as human beings. And if you are spiritual as I am, as like children of God, um, that that is infinite, that that is not going away, that it is a permanent thing that we automatically have as human beings, as children of God, we have worth forever. Right. Um, but that my worthiness in terms of like my success or my standards of, to measure how I'm doing in life, that is going to fluctuate, but it's not going to change my worth. Um, and when I really accepted that, that changed everything for me because then it wasn't like, I felt like I had to achieve things in order to feel like I had a place on the earth. Like I was worthy of living, you know, um, I realized that I was needed on the earth and worthy 
just as I am imperfect, human, struggling, climbing up the mountain, I am worth it right now. And that, that one thing totally changed my life. Was that a realization that changed your life? Like you heard that and it was a quick, like click, or was that kind of like, okay, I'll take that. I'll let it sit here. Like, did that take you a minute to kind of like really lean into that? Oh, for sure. I think like when, when she first taught me that it was like, oh wow. Like, and of course, I mean, like growing up, like in church, I think that's something that I knew like in my brain, you know, but I didn't know it in my heart yet. It was like, I needed, I just needed her to explain it to me that way. And for me to be like, oh, you know, like it was, it was the first time in my life where I really let myself need God, you know, before I was like, I'm a good person by myself. I don't, I love you. And I think you're awesome. I'm trying to be like you, but I don't really need you to help me be good because I'm already doing it. And then on my mission, I couldn't do it by myself. It was, the standard was too high. And so letting myself need help and letting myself be human, um, was completely life-changing for me in that moment, but it's been something that over the past, you know, 10, 12 years since then that I have really been developing as well and relearning and kind of reconverting myself to that message of you're already good enough, Heidi, like, and with advocating now, I mean, I talk on podcasts and I went and taught several lectures at university at UVU and I'm, I am just actively advocating for the mentally ill population. Um, but all of that is because I don't want other people to feel that pain that I felt to feel that isolation. Um, cause I think mental health, mental illness is already so hard and it can already lead to suicide just from the thoughts that it brings you. But I think that the biggest thing that leads to suicidal tendencies and just life being wrecked is the shame. It's the isolation. It's the feeling of no one else will understand this. Like I am so bad because I have these thoughts. And so if you can open up that light to someone else and make them realize, oh, I'm just a person who's sick. This isn't, I'm not bad. I'm just sick. Um, I really think that this legitimately saves lives. Yeah, I do too. And, you know, that's something that I have loved about the direction that social media has taken. You know, there's, there's good and there's awful things in everything, but having a place to have these conversations be opened up. Cause like you said, when you first started struggling, when you were nine, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, it was this really dark thing that was like, hush, hush, please don't talk about it. And so not that I'm glad that this is an experience that you've gone through because I wouldn't wish that on anyone. I am glad that you are at a place now where you're able to come on and authentically talk and not sugarcoat it. And because, you know, there's someone listening who needs it, who needs to hear that, that message that like, you're okay. You're not okay, but you can be okay. And I like you, if you know me and everyone who listens knows this, that I love analogies. And so your analogy of the waves, I think is so perfect. Um, especially because if we take it from looking at, we know how to swim, most of us know how to swim. And so to be somewhere where we're not able to, it's like, no, I know how to swim. I don't need your help. I don't need this, but I know how to swim. And then it just gets frustrating, right? When these waves keep coming and you're like, but I know how to swim. And so I think that happens sometimes in like 
life with us where we're like, I know how to do this. Like I should be able to do this. And you said, you know, the medication helped those waves not be tidal waves and helped you. And so then at that point too, you're like, okay, well, I should be good now. I should be able to swim. Yeah. And it's like, well, this might help you swim better, or this might help you learn a new stroke or like flip over on your back. And guess what? You can go a little bit longer. Like we'll just totally lean all the way into this analogy. Like newsflash. I was just doggy paddling before. I didn't know how to swim. Right. Yeah. And some of us are like, yeah, you thought you knew how to swim. You don't actually. You knew how to keep your face out of the water. That's all you had to do. Yeah. But I love that analogy because I think it, it brings it to a place where we can kind of laugh about and kind of visualize something, but then be like, oh yeah, there might be a technique that could change the game for me. And I just need to be open to that. And like you said, you know, your dad was the one that kind of opened that door for you where you said, I should have done this for myself. Sometimes we can't. And sometimes we need that other person, but the fact that you were willing to take that help from that other person and to go like, that is huge. And again, sharing is helping someone else to be like, okay, I can, Heidi did it. I can do it. You know, there's, there's things. So with where you're at now, you said, you know, medication was life-changing. Seeing a therapist was life-changing. Are there other things that you've implemented or that you have now that are like tools that are your go-to tools or like in your standby kit or like, you know, what are the things that are helping you kind of stay afloat or continue to be a good swimmer. If we're going to, we're going to stick to this analogy. Real we're gonna <laughs> stick to the analogy. Okay. Um, really quick, Jesse, I'm just going to look something up really quick because yeah. this reminded me of when I went and talked at UVU. Um, I talked about five kind of things that you can do to improve your mental health. Um, and I'm just looking at that list right now. And they're all with an analogy. So you're going to really love that when I, I'm it here in, for it. <laughs> when I find it in my massive list of notes that is always growing. Okay. I found it. Thank you. Okay. Back up. Yep. Okay. So there are a lot of things that I have done and that I am doing that help me with my mental health and help me to be able to um, take better care of myself. Um, but there's a few things that I would probably recommend the very most. Um, and I'm going to talk to you about these from the framework of a computer, because at the end of the day, that's what our brains are. Our brains are the most advanced, complicated computers in the whole entire world. And so if we don't think it's weird that our computer needs to be charged and needs a break and overshoots, then why are we so mean in our brains that are infinitely more complex Um, they also need to recharge. They also need to be taken care of. So if you're on your laptop and things start going a little wonky, the first thing that anyone is going to tell you to do is what? To turn off your computer and turn it back on again, right? To restart. Our bodies have a natural restart put into them. This is the most simple, obvious answer. That restart button is sleep. I have learned that my number one, number one trigger for depression and anxiety is not getting enough sleep. If I am not getting enough sleep, like if I have a newborn or I just have a lot of stress on my plate, absolutely every single time without fail, my mental illness flares up every single time. Um, And so something that I have found is very helpful is one, really prioritizing getting good sleep at night, but then two, If I'm just having a rough time, 
the best thing for me to do, put a shoe on for my kids and go take a nap because that little restart, when I wake up from a nap or when I wake up from a good night's sleep, all of my problems are still there. But what has changed is that my brain is now in a place where I can combat those instead of being in a place where I'm so stressed and so anxious and so overwhelmed that it feels completely um, insurpassable to me. So sleep, that is my number one, number one, go-to line defense. Two, um, if you have turned on your computer back on again, and it's still messing up something that you might want to do, um, is start clicking out of programs that you're not using right now, because our computers just get overheated. There's too many you have like too many websites open, too many apps open. Um, so you're going to shut them down. So your computer can just focus on the things that are the very most important that you're using right now. Likewise, we can do that with our lives by cutting things out of our schedule that are not necessary and relaxing. Um, I have to really treat my mental illness the way that I would treat any other illness. Um, if I had a cold, I wouldn't go to work. I would stay home. I'd get some popsicles, some Coke, and I'd watch some movies, right? Because I'm taking care of my body. Uh, if I had a broken leg, I wouldn't go running on it every day. I'd take a break. Let's be honest. I don't have a broken leg and I still don't go running. Don't <laughs> um, but we don't feel guilt about taking care of ourselves when we are physically ill. But there is this stigma against your being lame and lazy if you take a break when you're feeling mentally ill. Um, but that just, that is a stigma. That is not a thing. Mental illness is scientifically proven just as much as any other illness. And this is something that as a society, we need to get over and we need to realize it's okay to cut back. It's okay to take a break if we need to, because I promise you that your life is worth a whole lot more than whatever was on your to-do list today. And your mental health is worth a whole lot more then whatever's on your to-do list today, you are worth more than that. 100%. So step two, step one, sleep, step two, relax, cut back your schedule and relax. Uh, step three, if you've take, you've turned off your computer, you turn it back on, you close out extra computer programs, things are still weird. What you're going to want to start doing is troubleshooting, trying to figure out exactly what is causing this problem. So a way that we can troubleshoot in our own lives is through meditation and through journaling. Um, when I was in meeting with that first therapist, I've met with many therapists since then, but that first therapist had me do something that I still do frequently. It's called a non-posterity journal, AKA a journal that no one except you is ever supposed to read. <laughs> Basically you write it down and then you rip it up and you throw it away. Cause you just got it out. So what that is, is when you are just feeling depressed or anxious or overwhelmed, you just get a piece of paper and you just write. Just freeform write every little thing that your brain is telling you, every negative thought, every insecurity, everything that's stressing you out. The reason why you do that is because when those things are in your brain, your brain processes them as fact, as absolute yeah. truth. But when you put them on a piece of paper and then they are physically detached from your brain and from your body, then you can read that list and you can start crossing things off and saying this this is just a weird thing. My brain's telling me that's not true. Um, and it can help you to isolate the things in your life that you have no control over that you can let go. And then the things that you actually do have something control over that you can do something about. Um, so I would recommend a million times over 
taking the time to just write down these, put it all on a piece of paper list that will help you to troubleshoot what's going on in your brain, help you to realize what really is the actual issue and what there is that you can do about it to make your life better. Yeah. Helps Meditation you be a little bit is, more objective, right? Exactly. Exactly. It helps you look at your brain as if it is a computer that needs fixing. Um, yeah. Also meditation goes along with that too. Meditation is another form of uh, looking into ourselves, looking into our minds, finding out what's going on. Meditation comes in so many forms, running, yoga, just sitting and listening to relaxing music. It's not about what's like, quote unquote, like the best or the right way to meditate. It's about what helps you connect with yourself. Prayer is a form of meditation, journaling, um, having conversations, even just like sitting down with your best friend and just talking out out loud, that is a form of meditation as well. Um, so I would recommend that troubleshooting through meditation and journaling, um, along the same lines, uh, if you've done everything you can on yourself, you still can't figure out what's going on. You're going to call customer service to figure out what's going on with your computer. We all have our own customer service line. And that is our friends, our family, uh, our social networks, our doctor, God, whoever it is that we reach out to. It's so important to talk to those people in your life because those are the people who can give you an outside perspective. Sometimes when we're in it, in our own brains, it's so hard to detach ourselves, to be able to see what's going on in our lives and in our brains objectively, but other people can not only give us that outside perspective, but can give us the perspective of someone who really knows us well enough to be able to understand why we specifically might be thinking those things or feeling those things. So step four, customer service slash talk to your people. So these four steps, sleep, relaxation, meditation, and journaling, and talking to your friends. These are four steps that regardless of whether you have a diagnosable mental illness, or you're just a regular person who has bad days. Um, these are four steps that are going to help everybody. The last two steps are things that I would say, um, are for people specifically who struggle more along the mental illness line. Um, step five, if talk to customer service or something really long, they find out there's a virus, there's something wrong on your computer. They need to delete that virus. Think about those tidal waves where it's like, it doesn't matter how good I am at using my computer. There's a virus. It's not going to work. A virus is, is an illness. And so medication for me, taking meds, step five has helped to delete that virus in my brain so that I can function properly. And so that I can learn to swim. And then step six, if you delete the virus, there's still something wrong. You might need to completely reset the computer reprogram the computer. Um, and that is through therapy. Therapy helps us to rewire, reset our brains. It helps us to come up with new processes and new neural connections so that our brains, instead of going from point A to point Z can just go to point A to point B, you know, they don't go to this completely illogical place, but they go to a more um, logical and healthy place, a kinder place. Um, I think therapy is great though. Even if you don't have a mental illness, I recommend therapy to everybody because yeah, I, I feel like, you know, we go to school to learn how to drive. We go to school. I went to hair school to learn how to do hair, but if there's not any school for how to be kind to yourself, there's not a school for how to deal with, uh, emotional struggles or how to have a happy marriage or how to be a good parent. But therapy can help us navigate all of the changes of our lives. It can help us to understand past trauma, to understand 
the, the ways that our brain works. So I obviously medication is specifically only if you have an illness, but therapy, I would recommend to anybody on this planet, especially those who are struggling with a mental illness. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. I was talking to someone the other day and, um, the idea of like, you know, when we're in school, like you're talking all these classes we have, and we have a guidance counselor that we're assigned to, and they like help us make choices and figure out things. And I was like, we should all come with like a guidance counselor, just like for life. Like we should just all be assigned someone that helps, you know, and I love, I love that therapy is getting a more mainstream and there's more ways to access it. I wish there was still better ways to pay for it, (laughs) you know, and so I I love that you, that you bring that up as kind of that final reset. And I like the analogy again, I love analogies, but I like the analogy of a computer because it takes that emotion, especially that shame emotion out of it a little bit to look at yourself a little bit more objectively. And that's one of my big things is when I can like kind of step out of myself. Like you said, even when you were talking about looking at when you were nine or 10 and you see yourself kind of as like a separate person. Yeah. If I can do that and look at myself kind of like completely outside myself or as a computer, as something else, it takes that like really on the surface level emotion kind of out of it. We're able to like, look at it and be like, okay, yeah. Like what needs to be reset? What needs to be unplugged. And so I really like that analogy of, of the computer and those steps are just, they're good because they're takeaways. There was something that I can implement literally today and be like, what do I need? Sleep check. Let's go. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So thank you for sharing like tips that are actually like, what do I need today? And what can I take with me? Sure. Um, you know, and I think this conversation is really important, especially if you follow me or if you follow Heidi and know either one of us from social media, we are bright, sunshiny people. Like when you were explaining how you were as a kid and like what your soul is and in this body, like I'm that person too, like Mm -hmm. sunshine, bubbly, love people. And I think it's important to note that like, we still can come with a wide range of those emotions. Like just because that's like our go-to setting or whatever, that every emotion is still there. And I think when we get to the point where, you know, a lot of people will say my show is called the positively you podcast, like it's positive. And I am so not like that slap a smile on and pretend everything is okay. Like leaning in and being the most positive version of you is leaning into those emotions and asking yourself those questions. And like those brain dumps, like you said, getting it all out on paper And sitting with some of those things and figuring it out, like that's how you show up as that best and positive person. And so I love, I've loved having this conversation with you because you are like, you're just this Ray who wants everyone to feel loved and happy and good. And like, like you said, live your life, not just be here, but then it's so important that we acknowledge the entire spectrum of all of the emotions that we're going to feel and not accompany any of that with shame. And that's been the journey that you've been on. Yeah. I just love what you said there. It reminds me of what Brene Brown says about how you can't, um, what does she say? Selectively numb emotions. If you're going to numb pain, you're also numbing joy. And something that I have learned through all of this, my life journey with illness is that when, as I have come, 
to not just accept, but to embrace my pain and to embrace those negative emotions and to work through them. I am now able to, when I'm happy and I'm feeling happy, that is how I'm genuinely feeling. And it has, it has freed me to be able to feel joy in a way that I could not feel it when I was unwilling to feel the pain. You have to be willing to feel both. You can't, you either live numb or you live full. And there's not really a lot of wiggle room there. Yeah. And it can be scary to live full yeah. and to acknowledge and to, and to tune into that. And so, you know, having all of those tools and all of those resources and reaching out to the people that you need to and building, you know, the, the customer service lines that you need. Yeah. And I'm here to say that if you don't feel like you have a customer service line, I'll just throw you out here, Heidi, reach out to Heidi. She'll be there. I will be <laughs> there. Like I'm, even throw, I'm throwing you out there. Yeah. Oh, please do. You know? No, please do. Please do. I just want to say if there is anyone listening who, and this is an offer I give to you, I give it to literally any single person on this planet. So you can tell anybody I said this, if you are struggling with dark feelings with feelings that you might be struggling with a mental illness, but it's too scary still to talk to your people. It's too close. Literally any person on this planet, anybody can come talk to me. And I am happy to be that icebreaker for you to be that first contact, that first person. Um, because I think that sometimes what it takes is just kind of building those courage muscles talking to someone about it, owning it so that you're in a place where then you can talk to your doctor and you can talk to your family anybody, please talk to me. And if you are dealing with those things severely, please, 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 please Google the suicide prevention hotline. We can put this in your post, Jesse, because yes. there are yep. numbers you can call day or night where somebody who is a trained professional can be there to help you. Um, because I know this is like a, a very difficult topic, but it's real thing. There are so many people in this world who are genuinely struggling with suicidal thoughts and tendencies. And it's like, I promise you, whoever you are, you're wanted on this earth. You're needed on this earth. Your life is worth it. Nobody, nobody is better off without you. And you deserve to treat yourself with that kindness to, to get the help and the support that you need. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent, you know, and, and thank you so much for offering that. And I offer that same thing that if a lot of times, you know, you don't want to be leaning on your close friends. You don't want to put that yeah. burden or whatever on them. A hundred percent. There is someone there's two right here <laughs> that you can reach out to, to be that icebreaker. And, you know, this is like Heidi said, this is a heavy topic, but it's something that I, I you are not alone. A hundred percent. You are not alone. And it doesn't matter how far on that spectrum of darkness you might feel. Someone has been there. Someone is there. Someone has come out of it on the other side and wants to help. Um, and you know, the difference that Heidi said between worth and worthiness, if that's something you struggle with or perfectionism or marking up checklists or needing, a, a a line to value yourself on any of the things like there is so many things. And Heidi shared a bunch of them tools and ways that you can feel better and ways that you can step into living and living fully. And, and just that idea of being kind to yourself and it's baby steps, it's little things here and there. Um, but I think that this is a really important conversation that we've had today. And I want to just thank you so much for coming on and, and being completely open and completely authentic and talking about the hard things, because 
I am a firm believer that when we open up and we let those walls down, that we strengthen relationships and we strengthen, you know, the conversations and just, I always walk away feeling just so, oh, I don't know, full. And I hope that's what we're, what we have given to you listening, um, that you just feel a little bit more full, that you feel like you can go another day, that you can do it, that you're here, that life is, is good. And, and, you know, I'm rambling now, but Heidi, I just want to say thank you because you have walked a path that is hard to walk and you are moving boulders out of the way for the people coming behind you and telling them how to get over the boulders, how to push them out of the way themselves and empowering people to do that and to be kinder to themselves. And I just want to say thank you for doing that. Oh, thank you, Jesse. Thank you. I appreciate that a lot. I hope that whoever's listening to this, just know that it's for you, that take this as your sign, you know, take this as your sign. A hundred percent. With that, we will end it. And let us know if you guys liked this episode, if it helps you in any way, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for hanging out with me again today. I'm so glad you pressed play. If you want to take a quick second to share this episode with someone you think would love it too, that would be amazing. If you're loving the show, make sure you go and leave a review on iTunes. Reviews are like magic for podcasts, and your review will help get this show into the ears of more amazing women just like you. And come find me over on Instagram. I'm there at positively.jesse, and I cannot wait to hang out with you some more. So until next time, have an amazing week.